0: Hi, welcome to New Hope Community Church Online. The sermon you're about to hear was originally given by Pastor Chuck Wilson. New Hope Community Church to know, to live, and to share Jesus Christ. The title for today is Don't Waste God's Grace. Or, more positively, I was playing with this this morning Embrace God's Grace. All right, so don't waste it, embrace it, okay? Uh, 1 Kings chapter 20, and we've been looking at Elijah's life and recently his sabbatical. And speaking of sabbaticals, no, I'm not taking one. But speaking of sabbaticals, uh, we recently encouraged Mark and Vanessa, who are missionaries in the Philippines, they're from the Philippines, we encouraged them to take a sabbatical in the Philippines there. Mark was exhausted. In fact, we'll show some of the pictures uh, you can see some of the things he 's been doing it 's not just church; he does all kinds of different things involved <laughs> it 's pretty exciting stuff over there and uh, doing medical stuff and mission stuff and uh, all kinds of crazy things but he and vanessa i don 't know how they do all they do, but the pictures just give you a little picture of what they do and so we really encourage them their church and our our church were sister churches uh, we encourage them to take. Uh, sabbatical and we, we as a church gave them enough support to help the crib ministry go on because that's one of the ministries is the crib, the orphanage ministry that they do and so they, he, it was hard for them to take the break so we, we helped them with the resources for that and we also gave them the resources to take the family to uh, another place, another island I think they ended up getting away, is that right Brian? They went to another island, got away to a, for like couple weeks, maybe, uh, three weeks or whatever, but came back very, very refreshed, doing super, came back refreshed. The ministry continued because he's done a great job training his ministry leaders. Uh, they, they, their ministry leaders took over and, and carried on the work. And next week, we'll be sending Joshua. Next Sunday night, we'll be sending Joshua to help them out and to be mentored by Mark. We're really excited about that, to, to be able to connect with Mark like that. So don't miss next Sunday commissioning for Josh. I'm going to be sharing a lot of different stuff. I'm even going to have Josh share some things. He doesn't know it yet, but just FYI. Uh, I don't tell him too far ahead. Anyway, uh, so Elijah has also been on a sabbatical, as you know. We've been looking at Elijah's sabbatical. Although he's coming out of his sabbatical, if you've been following the story, he's been coming out of his sabbatical because God has given him a renewed purpose. He's giving him a new job to do. But he didn't get all the way back for chapter 20, where he's going to see Elijah's not quite back yet from his sabbatical and from the, the jobs that God has given him to do. But God did not take a break while Elijah was on his sabbatical. God never takes a sabbatical. He never takes a break. While, Josh, while Elijah was on his R&R, God kept working his purpose, and he used the prophets. They called them the sons of the prophets. Elijah had a school of prophets. He, where He trained these ministry leaders. It was a boot camp seminary, and he, God was using some of the prophets that Elijah has tra- had trained to keep God, his purpose, God's purpose, on track. And he uses one specific one we're going to see today. So in First Kings 20, Elijah is not specifically directly named here. But it's an important link from chapter nineteen to chapter twenty-one, and Elijah's hand pr- fingerprints are all over this anyway because of of who he, who's following him. Okay, so we're going to jump next time to chapter twenty-one, and Elijah's life and ministry continues. Okay, let me pray before we read. Father, we thank you for the worship. We thank you for bringing each one of us here today. We thank you for those who are baptized and and how you worked in their lives to to bring them to that place of, of blessing, of being baptized. We just pray for your mercy and grace as we've been singing about your grace. We pray for your mercy and grace to apply this word to our hearts. We pray your Holy Spirit would move us forward spiritually through this. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, now, I'm going to read the whole chapter. Shocking, we're going to do a whole chapter today. I know it's a rare thing. This would normally take us eight months or something, but we're going to do a whole chapter. Because Elijah's not officially in here, but but, now you'll see why. All right, so chapter 20. I'm going to read it all. Now, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, mustered his entire army, accompanied by 32 kings with their horses and chariots. He went up and besieged Samaria and attacked it. He sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, saying, This is what Ben-Hadad says. Your silver and gold are mine. The best of your wives and children are mine. The king of Israel answered, Just as you say, my lord, the king, and I and all I have are yours. The messengers came again and said, This is what Ben-Hadad says. I sent to demand your silver and gold, your wives and your children. But about this time tomorrow, I'm going to send my officials to search your palace and the houses of your officials. They will seize everything you value and carry it away. Nice guy, right? Uh, The king of Israel summoned all the elders of the land and said, See how this man is looking for trouble? When he sent for my wives and my children my silver and gold, I did not refuse him. Real family guy, right? Okay. uh, the elders and the people all answered, Don't listen to him or agree to his demands. So he replied to Ben Hadad's messengers, Tell my lord the king, your servant will do as you demanded the first time, but this demand I cannot meet. They left and took the answer back to Ben Hadad. Then Ben Hadad sent another messenger to Ahab. May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if enough dust remains in Samaria to give each of my men a handful. The king of Israel answered, Tell him one who puts on his armor should not boast like one who takes it off. Ben-Hadad heard this message while he and the kings were drinking in their tents, and he ordered his men, prepare to attack. So they prepared to attack the city. Meanwhile, this is where it gets interesting, meanwhile a prophet came to Ahab, king of Israel, announced, this is what the Lord says. Do you see this vast army? I will give it into your hand today, and then you will know that I am the Lord. But who will do this? asked Ahab. The prophet replied, this is what the Lord says. The young officers of the provincial commanders will do it. And who will start the battle? he asked. The prophet answered, you will. So Ahab summoned the young officers of the provincial commanders, 232 men. Then he assembled the rest of the Israelites, 7,000 in all. They set out at noon while Ben-Hadad and the 32 kings allied with him were in their tents getting drunk. The young officers of the provincial commanders went out first. Now, Ben-Hadad had displaced scouts who reported men are advancing from Samaria. He said, if they have come out in peace, take them alive. If they have come out for war, take them alive. He's obviously not too worried about these guys, right? You know, he's not afraid of this little dinky army that has come out here, right? So, verse 19, the young officers of the provincial commanders marched out of the city with the army behind them, and each one struck down his opponent. At that, the Arameans Arameans fled with the Israelites in pursuit, but Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, escaped on horseback with some of his horsemen. The king of Israel advanced and overpowered the horses and chariots and inflicted heavy losses on the Arameans. Afterward, the prophet came to the king of Israel and said, Strengthen your position and see what must be done, because next spring the king of Aram will attack you again. Meanwhile, the officials of the king of Aram advised him, Their gods are gods of the hills. That is why they are too strong for us. But if we fight them on the plains, surely we will be stronger than they. Do this. Remove all the kings from their commands and replace them with other officers. You must also raise an army like the one you lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot, so we can fight Israel on the plains. Then surely we will be stronger than they. He agreed with them and acted accordingly. The next spring, Ben-Hadad mustered the Arameans and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. When the Israelites were also mustered and given provisions, they marched out to meet them. The Israelites camped opposite them like two small flocks of goats, while the Arameans covered the countryside. The man of God came up and told the king of Israel, this is what the Lord says. Because the Arameans think the Lord is the God of the hills and not the God of the valleys, I will deliver this vast army into your hands, and you will know that I am the Lord. Remember that line, you will know that I am the Lord. For seven days they camped opposite each other, and on the seventh day the battle was joined. The Israelites inflicted 100,000 casualties on their Aramean foot soldiers in one day. The rest of them escaped to the city of Aphek, where the wall collapsed on 20,000 27,000 of them, and Ben-Hadad fled to the city and hid in an inner room. His officials said to him, Look, we have heard that the king of the house of Israel, the kings are merciful. Let us go to the king of Israel with sackcloth around our waist and ropes around our head. Perhaps he will spare your life. Wearing sackcloth around their waist and ropes around their heads, they went to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Ben-Hadad says, Please let me live. The king answered, Is he still alive? He is my brother. The men took this as a good sign and were quick to pick up his word. Yes, your brother Ben-Hadad, they said. Go and get him, the king said. When Ben-Hadad came out, Ahab had him come up into his chariot. I will return the cities my fathers took from your father, Ben-Hadad offered. You may set up your own market areas in Damascus as my father did in Samaria. Ahab said, on the basis of a treaty, I will set you free. So he made a treaty with him and let him go. So far, so good. And here we go. By the word of the Lord, one of the sons of the prophet said to his companion, strike me with your weapon. But the man refused. So the prophet said, because you have not obeyed the Lord, as soon as you leave me, a lion will kill you. And after the man went away, a lion found him and killed him. He didn't want to join the prophets, you know, the school of the prophets, uh, you know, too quickly, right? It's A dangerous position to have. Verse 37, the prophet found another man and said, strike me, please. So the man struck him and wounded him. Then the prophet went and stood by the road waiting for the king. He disguised himself with a headband over, down over his eyes. As the king passed by, the prophet called out to him. Your servant went into the thick of the battle, and someone came to meet me with a captive and said, Guard this man. If he is missing, it will be your life for his life, or you must pay a talent of silver. While the servant, your servant was busy here and there, the man disappeared. That is your sentence, the king of Israel said. You have pronounced it yourself. Then the prophet quickly removed his headband from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. He said to the king, this is what the Lord says. You have set a man free, I determined should die. Therefore, it is your life for his life, your people for his people. Sullen and angry, the king of Israel went to his palace in Samaria. Wow. Israel is attacked by a massive army, and it looks like Ahab, King Ahab's number is up, and as well as Israel's number, they're both up. Judgment has come. But look what happens in 1 Kings 20, 13, which we already read, but I'm just going to read that verse. In verse 13, where he says, Meanwhile, a prophet came to Ahab, king of Israel, and announced, This is what the Lord says. Do you see this vast army? I will give it into your hand today, and then you will know that I am the Lord. God offers Ahab help. (laughs) Miraculous help, right? Right? And it was completely unlooked for. He wasn't praying. He wasn't repenting. He didn't call a national fast. He didn't even throw out his idols of Baal. He didn't do any of that. Didn't do any of that. And yet God helps him. Is God this do you understand God? God is a very puzzling, you know, Jehovah is a very puzzling God. The rest of the gods we can figure out. All the man made gods, you can figure them out. They're just like us. But this God is different. He's a very puzzling God. He doesn't judge Ahab yet. He gives Ahab and Israel a reprieve. It's a good thing I'm not God. I was thinking about this. It's a good thing I'm not God. If I was God, I would have made sure Ahab lost this battle, got killed, and Israel got take, beat up for their bow worship. That's what I would have done, right? I would have made sure they lose the battle and the war if I was God. Good thing I'm not God. Uh, but it's... it's <laughs> <laughs> I can always get an Amen. Alright. Uh, but it's not really that puzzling if we really understand God. In fact, in Ezekiel 33, eleven, he says, God, this is God speaking, he says, Say to them, As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn. Turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? God doesn't want to punish us. He doesn't want to have to kill us, the wicked. He He wants us to repent. That's what God really wants. God gives us every chance in God's word and in our lives. He gives us every possible chance to repent. That's God. So we see, remember God's grace. There, God's mercy and grace. We see in 1 Kings 20, verse 15, back to 1 Kings 20, we see that uh, what happened. So Ahab summoned the young officers of the provincial commanders, 230 men. Then he assembled the rest of the Israelites, 7,000 in all. 7,000 again. Whoever we heard that number before. 7,000, the remnant that hadn't bowed their knees to Baal. This is a different 7,000, but once we see that same number again, it's a very small number for an army against a massive, massive army. You saw the numbers that were killed on the opposite. But God can do it with a small army. That's all it takes for God to win a battle. He could have won with one guy. Remember Samson wiping everybody out? He could have won with one soldier. It's a remnant army just like the remnant revival we talked about before. There's a remnant army left just like the remnant revival. Remember we talked about that before? The remnant 7,000. The key to revival is not to grow bigger churches. Everybody says, we've got to grow bigger churches, and we've got to use this strategy, and that strategy, and this marketing technique, and, and we've got to follow all these guys who are growing these, these bigger churches, no matter how they're growing them. That's the secret to revival. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says the secret is to prune the church down to the true Christians. And that's when God moves. That's when his power is seen. When it's pruned down to the true believers. That's when revivals happen in in history. So after this victory, the prophet helps Ahab again. Again, not looking for it, but he helps him again. Uh, Chapter 20, verse 21 The king of Israel advanced and overpowered the horses and the chariots and inflicted heavy losses on the Arameans. Afterward, the prophet came to the king of Israel and said, Strengthen your position and see what must be done, because next spring the king of Aram will attack you again. So he helps him again. Why does he keep helping this wicked king Ahab who has this wicked country? Why does he keep helping him? Verse 28, he tells us why. The man of God came and told the king of Israel, this is what the Lord says. Because the Arameans think the Lord is the God of the hills and not the God of the valleys, I will deliver this vast army into your hands and you will know that I am the Lord. God is showing them something. He's showing them that he is the one calling the shots. He's showing them that he it's God's power. It's all God's power. He's showing he's the Israelites that, and he's showing the Arameans that. He's showing the world that. He's showing that to us today as we read that. He's showing us that it's all his power. And they win this total victory. They wipe them out. Total victory. But Ahab wastes God's grace. He wastes God's grace through disobedience. What a surprise. Ahab would do that. But he he wastes it. Look at verse 41 where we see what happens. Then the prophet quickly removed the headband from his eyes. And the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. He said to the king, this is what the Lord says. You have set a man free, I determined, should die. Therefore, it is your life for his life, your people for his people. God had commanded Ahab to kill Ben-Hadad. That's not recorded in here, but we know it was because we know he gave that command because of what the prophet said, and Ahab didn't argue. So we know God had given him that command to, to defeat that army and to kill ben- Ben-Hadad. Now, remember, it makes sense though, doesn't it? Because remember, what was the first job that Elijah was given last time? What was the first job, the first anointing he was supposed to do? He was to anoint Hazael, the king over Aram. God had already judged Ben-Hadad. He said, Ben-Hadad is done. He's going to die. I'm replacing him with Hazael, his second in command. So this was all, all matches God's plan. This guy was being judged by God. Well We talked about that. God appoints the rulers of every country. He judges, he, he appoints them, and he takes them out. That's what he does. But Ahab disobeys. He was supposed to kill this guy because Hazael was supposed to be the next king. We saw that last time how he did become the king. He smothered Ben-Hadad, right? But but he disobeys him. Why? Why did Ahab disobey and not kill Ben-Hadad? It was pride. He wanted his towns back. All those towns that were taken away, he wanted his possessions back. He wanted these towns back. And greed, pride and greed, because what did he want? All he could think about were the markets of Damascus. All the gold, that was like the stock market of that day. The markets of Damascus were a gold mine. That's all he could think about was that. And he wasn't being merciful. Ahab's not merciful. (laughs) He had already butchered the prophets of Jehovah. Killed them all according to Jezebel's prodding. He wasn't merciful. He had killed them, but he won't kill God's enemy. I mean, look at, look at this guy. He's so twisted. He's merciful to this enemy king who's just trying to kill him. He's being merciful to that king. But what did he do to the poor soldier when he thought the prophet was a soldier wounded, fighting in a battle for him? What did he say? You die. Right? He's gonna sacrifice that guy, but he won't kill the the guy he's supposed to kill. But but it ends up pronouncing his own judgment. What he pronounced on that poor soldier, which was really a prophet, you're gonna die. God, he pronounced his own judgment at that at that moment. That was his own judgment. The prophet rebukes him in verse 42. He said to the king, this is what the Lord says. You have set a man free I determined should die. Therefore, it is your life for his life and your people for his people. And this, life for life, this was literally fulfilled in 1 Kings 22. We're not going to talk about that today. But in 1 Kings 22, we find Ahab is mad. He lets Ben-Hadad go. Ben-Hadad doesn't give him the cities back that he promised. And He's mad. What a shock, he didn't keep his deal, right? You know, And so, so he says, I'm going to go get him back. And he takes an army to go get back his cities. And in that battle, Ahab, Ahab is, uh, is killed by that army. Ben-Hadad's army kills Ahab, kills him. So the prophet, we see the, that fulfillment happening exactly. So the prophet rebukes Ahab. How does Ahab respond? Verse 43, sullen and angry, the king of Israel went to his palace in Samaria. He's sullen and angry. He's mad at God instead of being mad at himself. That's who he should have been mad at, right? He should have been mad at himself, but he's mad at God. And You know, you talk about a nar- just, just a narcissist. He's a complete narcissist. That's what this guy is. It's all about him. It, it reminds me a lot of when you discipline your, your kids. This probably never happened to you, but you might have seen other families like this. Where you they discipline your kids, and, and they've done something wrong, and you catch them doing something wrong, and you call them on it, and then they get mad at you as a parent. You know, and they're mad at the parents. They, don't, they just don't get it. They're just mad at you for pointing out something they did wrong. That's what This is like what happened here. He just became sullen and angry. He didn't listen. And we're gonna see next time he's sullen and angry again, it's gonna cost them even more next time. Uh, Next time we get back here to 1 Kings 21. So, time to connect some dots. That's the story, now let's connect some dots. The USA has also been given a reprieve. We have been given a reprieve. We're not sure how long it's going to last. But that doesn't mean we have escaped judgment, not by a long shot. It all depends on how we respond. How we respond. Will we waste God's grace? Like Ahab did and like Israel ultimately also did. Will we waste God's grace? It doesn't look real hopeful for the USA today, does it? But we as Christians, now this is key, we as Christians have a whole different perspective. We have a whole different hope Than the country has, and that the world has. We have a whole different one. Why, this is going to be interesting. Why did God give Ahab and Israel success? Before sending the judgments of Elijah's three anointings. Remember the three anointings? Hazael, Jehu, Elisha's sword, the three swords. Uh, Before sending the judgment of Elijah's three anointings, why did God give Israel and Ahab success? Just before these judgments kicked in. Why? To show, and he says it here, to show Ahab in Israel that he is in control. And not just, not just them, but he also said so the Arameans will know that God is in control. Because who's coming next to, to, with the judgments? Hazael, the new king of Aram. That God is uh, going to anoint and turn loose on Israel. He's showing him too. The future king of Aram, He's showing him too that, hey, the God of Israel is in control. You might be hammering Israel, but it's all my doing. Jehovah God's doing. And he's showing Ahab and Israel and Hazael, the future enemy king, that he was in control. But they never got it. As we read on, we're going to see they never get it. And God knew they wouldn't get it. Before he even did this, he's telling them all this. He knew, God knows, he knew they wouldn't get it. But... Someone did get it. 7,000 people got it. 7,000 that, not talking about the army of 7,000, but remember the 7,000 that never bowed their knee to Baal? Remember God's remnant? They got it. And don't forget, they're going on this roller coaster ride. What the country goes through, they're going through. They weren't beamed up. There was no rapture. There may not be one. No, we're not getting in the middle of that one. But anyway. There was, they weren't beamed up. They had to ride this roller coaster ride to the bitter end. They. God lets them see. Amazing victory. Amazing victories before sending the terrible judgment. He was taking them on. He was showing them what this roller coaster ride was going to be like. He let them see the amazing victory before sending the judgment to show them that he is in control. No matter what they're going through, no matter what the country's going through, they were really God's chosen people, Israel. What, no matter what they were going to go through, he was showing them that he was in control and he had a purpose. He had a purpose. And that's what God does. He does the same for us. The same thing for us. He gives us victory before the setbacks. He gives us blessings before we experience setbacks. He gives us these amazing times of blessing so that when the trials do come, when he does send the trials on the country or on our church or on our family, whatever the purpose is, before he sends these trials, we have the assurance that God is in control and has a purpose. You see see what I'm saying? He shows us His love. He shows us the blessing. He gives us victories. He lets us see all that. Because then when, when something is coming that is going to be very painful to a country, to a church, to us individually, we already know, we have the assurance that He is in control. That's what He kept saying. I'm in control. He's getting ready to send send these terrible judgments on Israel. But he gives them all these victories because he's showing the remnant, the 7,000 godly ones. He's showing them that he is in control. And that's what God does for us. He gives us the assurance that he's in control and he has a purpose. God speaks our love language. We all have a love language. You know, you don't know the book, five love languages. We all have love languages. God knows exactly how to speak our love language. He knows what to say do and what to say to us and how to work in our lives so that we realize his love for us he knows it's different for all of us we all have different love languages but listen because he speaks our love language listen connect the dots when he does it remember remember how he showed us his love remember that when the trials come trust his purpose it's His purpose. The same God who sent the blessings now has sent this trial. Or lots of trials. <laughs> this is, it's the same God. He's in control. Remember that. When the trials come, trust His purpose. You know, we've been, you guys know what we've been going through with Sarah. And, you know, and thank God she's starting to walk. We're so thankful. You know, She's starting to walk. She's responding to the treatments. But, you know, you we, we saw those who have, you have known Sarah long enough know she was super athletic. Super, super athletic. Blessed athletically. And it was so much fun. She loved it. I loved it. We all loved it. We had a great time with that. And then, God sent this autoimmune, C-I-D-P. Did I get it right? Uh, he sent that. But that was also a blessing. That was also in God's purpose. I know I'm embarrassing everybody. That, that's also in God's purpose. And And you see... The reason we could trust, and she could, and I could, and we could trust God, is we already saw the blessing, and not just athletics. We blessed her with so many other ways. She's just a soup you would call her our sunshine, you know, our sunshine. it has been such a blessing, but, but we could trust the trial because we knew the same God that had blessed her athletically was blessing her with not being able to walk anymore. And we still were hoping and praying she could walk again. But but whatever God wanted, we were trusting him with that. And it's the same with all of us. And thank God she is starting to walk. She's walking great now. It's, 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 we're just so thankful. Keep on praying. But whatever God wants, whatever the outcome, we know God is in control. We trust him because of the love he showed. That's just one example. Think of your life. Think of how God has showed you his love. Through your salvation, through your sanctification, through your family, all, these, all different ways that no matter what, we can all look back and see how God has spoken our love language, has, has showed, blessed us, has worked in our life, has given us so much. And that's what we have to focus on. We have to focus on that. God deferred his judgment. Back to Israel. God deferred his judgment on Israel for the sake of the 7,000 elect. The 7,000 that hadn't bowed their knees to Baal. The 7,000 that God had chosen not to bow their knees to Baal. And He gave, through these victories, these victories before the judgment came, He gave, He bought Elijah time. He gave Elijah time to get them ready for the trial. Elijah and his school of prophets are out there preaching, teaching. Working miracles. Speaking prophetically against the evil. Against the Baal worship. Against the king and and his followers. Against Jezebel. They're, They're preparing. And they're preparing them for the trial. God gave Elijah time to equip the sons of the prophets. The school that would be the ones to shepherd them through the coming judgments. These are the ones who are going to shepherd them through that time of judgment. He gave them time. And God is doing the same for us today. God is giving us time to come to Christ, to get close to Jesus, to prepare for whatever God is going to send. In fact, in Second Peter, in 2 Peter 3, listen to what it says here in 2 Peter 3, verse 3 and 4. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, Where is this coming he promised? Talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Go on down to verse 8. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. The day of the Lord is coming. The return of Jesus Christ and his judgment on this earth, it's coming, but it's been delayed. Why? Because the Bible says God is patient. He is giving more people the chance to repent, more people the chance to put their faith in Jesus Christ. He's giving us more, us as Christians, more time to prepare spiritually for this time of testing that we're going to be facing. That's Why God waits. That's why He's patient. That's why God is waiting to judge the United States. I have. God's going to judge the whole world, and and He might judge the U.S. long before He judges the world. I, I, I think, I believe He's waiting to judge our country for this very same reason. What if 9 11 had been it? 9 11 was God's warning. That was a warning from God for this country. We haven't responded well, have we? But it was a warning. But what if that had been it? That was a first, We had just been just started as a church. We were only going for one year. Remember, some, who, who was there back 9-11? Who was part of this church? It's a couple, some hands, not some, some still remnant here. All right. What if that had been it? That first year of our church. Now, having said that, what if he had just judged the country and that was it, wiped us out and wiped us off the map? What if he had done that? How many of you here weren't Christians yet? How many of you hadn't put your faith in Jesus yet? How many of you would have faced God's judgment because of that? How many of you have been saved since then? How many of you have been baptized since then? How many of you have been sanctified and grown spiritually to a whole different place since that time? That's what what this is talking about. That God has given us that time. Just like he gave the, the 7,000 the time of this victory. He's given us this time to prepare. But will we embrace the grace or will we waste it? Will we embrace the grace? Maybe here today and you're not a Christian yet. You've never put your faith in Jesus Christ. Will you embrace God's grace by faith today? Will you embrace it today or waste it? Ephesians 2.8.9 talks about how to embrace God's grace. It it says, for it is by grace you are saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one may boast. For it is by grace you are saved through faith. Each one of us has a decision to make to put our faith in God's grace. God's grace is for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son Jesus to die in our place on a cross as a substitute for our sin. And he put everything we've ever done or ever will do on his son Jesus and under the blood of Jesus Christ. And we, he says, what I'm asking you, each one of us to do is to turn to Jesus and put your faith in him. Turn away from the sin, turn away from the old life, leave it all at the cross of Jesus Christ. Put your faith in Jesus and be saved. To become a new person here on this earth and be saved for all of eternity. That's what God calls us, for it is by grace you are saved through faith. Putting your faith and trust in what God has done. Will you embrace God's grace and put your faith in him today? Or will we waste God's grace? I pray that no one here will waste God's grace. I, as I was putting this together, it reminded me of a, when I was a youth pastor. The very first time, first position I ever had was not too far from here. And there was a, I was a youth pastor there. And there was a boy in my youth group. He was suddenly killed in a car accident. I'll never forget it. I'll never forget the night. The kids all just piled into the church. All of his friends from school piled into the church. It was just a mob, everybody crying. It was so sad. And this kid was only 17. And I had talked to him. We had all witnessed to him many, many times. Tried to get him to put his faith in Jesus. But he wasn't willing to make that commitment. He just said, I I want to live without God for a while. That was just his attitude. I just want to live without God for a while. He would not put his faith in God's grace. And he was killed in a car accident. And I'll never forget that night when we, all the kids were there crying and stuff. One of his, a couple of his friends were there and they were talking and, and they weren't Christians either, I could tell. And the one guy was saying, oh, it's such a shame. This, the kid, he said, he, he, it's a shame about him being killed because he had tickets to the Van Halen concert tonight. He and the other guy, oh, boy, dude, that's really sad. You know, that's really bad. You know, they were talking like this, you know. And I'm like, yeah, that's a a wasted ticket. And I just wanted to shake him. That wasn't the only ticket he wasted that night. He wasted a free ticket to heaven. He wasted God's grace. That was offered, I offered it to them. we all did, many, many times. Wasted God's grace. Will we waste God's grace or take that ticket, that free ticket? It's a prayer of faith, will we take that ticket? Christians, as Christians, will we waste God's grace? Or are we embracing his grace? No matter what we're going through, are we embracing his grace? Remember the 7,000, right? Are we remembering the blessings of God's grace in the midst of what we're going through? Especially our salvation. What more is there? Are we remembering the blessings of God's grace? Are we remembering that to carry us through the refining trial that God has led us into? Every time we get hit, it doesn't mean, oh, that's the devil hit me. No, God leads us. Matthew 4, verse 1. Jesus. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Jesus led by the Spirit into a desert to go through spiritual warfare. Are we depending on God's grace to carry us through that refining trial. Do we remember God's grace just like the 7,000 that that were going through these victories and and heading into the trial? That's the key, just like the 7,000. That's the key to our spiritual survival in a trial is remembering God's grace. I'm just going to finish with a story. I'm going to read it to you. It's a true story about the Civil War. I hope I can get through this story. Uh, Charlie Colson, the Christian drummer boy, by Dr. M. L. Rosevalley. an amazing story. This is the doctor writing the, the, the story. He said, I was a surgeon in the United States Army during the Civil War. Now keep in mind, remembering God's grace and taking us through the trials. I was a surgeon in the United States Army during the Civil War. After the Battle of Gettysburg, there were hundreds of wounded soldiers in my hospital. Many were wounded so severely that a leg or arm, or sometimes both, needed to be amputated. One of these was a boy who had only been in the service for three months. He was too young to be a soldier, so he enlisted as a drummer. When my assistants came to give him chloroform before they took off an arm and a leg, he turned to his head and refused the chloroform. When they told him that it was a doctor's orders, he said, "'Send the doctor to me.'" I'm going to take off an arm and a leg. I came to his bedside and said, "'Young man, why do you refuse chloroform?' When I found you on the battlefield, we weren't even going to bother to pick you up. You were wounded so badly. But when, I, but when I, I just saw you, I just knew there might be a mother somewhere waiting for you. I didn't want you to die, so I had him bring me here. But you've lost so much blood. If you don't use chloroform, you probably won't survive the surgery. He laid his hand on mine, little Charlie, looked me in the face and said, Doctor, one Sunday afternoon when I was nine and a half years old, I gave my heart to Christ. I learned to trust him then. And I've been trusting him ever since. I know I can trust him now. He is my strength. He will support me while you amputate my arm and leg. I asked him, if he will at least let me give him a little bit of brandy? And he said, no, I promised my mother, my father was an alcoholic. I promised my mother I would never drink a drop of alcohol. I've seen what it can do. I know what it can do. I, will, I promised her and I've never drank alcohol either. He said, I've never drank before. And he said, would you, have, would you send me into God's presence with brandy on my breath? So I asked him, do you want to see the chaplain? I'm just reading you some excerpts here. The chaplain knew the boy well from having seen him frequently at the tent prayer meetings. Taking his hand, he said, Charlie, I'm really sorry, sorry to see you like this. Oh, I'm all right, sir, Charlie answered. The doctor offered me chloroform, but I did not want any. Then he wanted to give me brandy, but I didn't want that either. So now if the Savior calls me, I can go to him in my right mind. You might not die, Charlie, said the chaplain, but if the Lord does call you home, is there anything I can do for you after you're gone? Chaplain, please reach under my pillow and take my little Bible. My mother's address is inside. Please send it to her and write a letter for me. Tell her that since I left home, I've never let a single day pass, no matter if we were on the march, on the battlefield, or in the hospital without reading a portion of God's word and daily praying that he would bless me. Turn to the doctor, he said, I'm ready, doctor, I promise I won't even groan while you take off my arm and leg if you don't offer me chloroform. I promise, but I didn't have the courage to take the knife in my hand without first going into the next room and taking a little brandy for myself. While cutting through the flesh, Charlie Coulson never groaned. But when I took the saw to separate the bone the lad took the corner of his pillow in his mouth and all i could hear him whispering was oh jesus blessed jesus stand by me now he kept his promise he never groaned i couldn't sleep that night whichever way i tossed and turned i saw those his eyes And every time I closed my eyes, I just kept seeing his eyes. A little after midnight, I finally got out of bed and visited the hospital, a thing I had never done before unless there was an emergency. I had such a strong desire to see that boy. When I got there, they said 16 of the wounded have just died. I said, was Charlie Colson one of them? I go, no, he's sleeping as sweetly as a baby. Five days after I performed the operation, Charlie sent for me. And it was from him that I heard my first gospel sermon. Doctor, he said, my time has come. I don't expect to see another sunrise. I want to thank you with all my heart for your kindness to me. I know that you are Jewish and that you don't believe in Jesus, but I want you to stay with me and see me die trusting my Savior to the last moment of my life. I've read this so many times, I still keep crying. I tried to stay, but I just couldn't. I didn't have the courage to stand by and see a Christian boy die, rejoicing in the love of that Jesus who I hated. So I hurriedly left the room. About 20 minutes later, an orderly came and found me, sitting in my office with my hands covering my face. He told me that Charlie wanted to see me. He's haunting him, right? I've just seen him, I answered, and I can't see him again. But doctor, he said, he must see you one more time before he dies. So I made up my mind to go see Charlie, to say an endearing word and let him die. However, it was determined that nothing he could say could influence me in the least. So as far as Jesus was concerned. When I entered the hospital, I saw he was sinking fast, so I sat down by his bed asking me to take his hand. He said, doctor, I love you because you are a Jew. The best friend I have found in the world was a Jew. I asked him who that was. And he answered, Jesus Christ. And I want to introduce you to him before I die. Will you promise me, doctor, that what I'm about to say to you, you you will never forget. I promise and he said, Five days ago, while you amputated my arm and leg, I prayed to the Lord Jesus Christ and asked him to make his love known to you. Those words went deep into my heart. I couldn't understand how, when I was causing him the most intense pain, he could forget all about himself and think of nothing but his Savior and my unconverted soul. All I could say to him was, Well, dear boy, you will soon be all right. With these words I left, and 12 minutes later, he fell asleep safe in the arms of his Jesus. That boy's dying words made a deep impression on me. I was rich at that time, so far as money was concerned, but I would have given every penny I possessed if I could have felt toward Christ as Charlie did. But that feeling cannot be bought with money. Alas, I soon forgot all about my Christian soldier's little sermon, but I could not forget the boy himself. Looking back, I now know that I was under deep conviction of sin at that time. But for nearly ten years, I fought against Christ with all the hatred I had until finally the dear boy's prayer was answered and I surrendered my life to the love of Jesus. About a year and a half after conversion, I went to a prayer meeting one evening in Brooklyn. It was one of those meetings where Christians testify about the loving kindness of God. After several had spoken, an elderly lady stood up and said, Dear friends, this is the last time you will ever see me. It's the last chance I will get to publicly thank the Lord. My doctor told me that my right lung is gone and my left lung is nearly gone and I'm failing fast, so I will only have a short time to be with you. But what is left of me belongs to Jesus. It's a great joy to know that I sh- shall soon meet my son with Jesus in heaven. Only God. Charlie was not only a soldier for his country, but he was also a soldier for Christ. He was wounded At the Battle of Gettysburg, was cared for by a Jewish doctor who amputated his arm and leg. He died five days after the operation. The chaplain of the regiment wrote me a letter and sent me the boy's Bible, my boy's Bible. I was told that in his dying hour, my Charlie sent for that Jewish doctor and said to him, Doctor, before I die, I wish to tell you that five days ago, while you amputated my arm and leg, I prayed to the Lord Jesus Christ. For you. As I heard this lady speak. I just couldn't sit still. I left my seat. Ran across the room. Took her arms and said. God bless you dear sister. Your boy's prayer has been heard and answered. I am the Jewish doctor. That Charlie prayed for. And his savior is now my savior. The love of Jesus has won my soul. Let's pray. As a Christian, do you know that grace that Charlie had? Are you experiencing that grace that he experienced? As a Christian, that grace is only a prayer away. Every day, that same grace is a prayer away. No matter what we're facing. Maybe here today, you you're not a Christian yet. But today could be the day that you find God's grace just like this doctor did because that grace is only a prayer away the prayer of faith you can pray at this second right where you're sitting or maybe you're listening to this on a podcast or you're hearing this in the car wherever you are wherever we are God's grace is a prayer away, a simple prayer of faith away. God, please forgive my sin. I repent. I walk away from that. Please forgive me. I put my faith in Jesus who suffered and died for me to take my punishment, to carry my sin and shame. I put my faith in Jesus. I surrender my life to your love, Jesus. If you have prayed that prayer of faith, receiving God's grace, you can go to God any time now as your father. And find mercy and grace for anything. And I want to encourage you to let somebody know. Tell me on the way out. Fill out the card. Send a text, email. Tell a friend or family member you're here with. Let somebody know. So we can be excited for you and encourage you. Father, I pray that this day would be the start of walking in your grace. Embracing your grace. Your mercy and grace. No matter what we're struggling, no matter what we're falling to, we get back up and embrace your grace. I pray that no one here would waste one drop of it. In Jesus' name.